Today we're continuing with the third part of our series, Summer in the Psalms, as together we explore what was the hymn book of, the, of ancient Israel, written by a variety of writers in a variety of circumstances, and believed to have been written over a period of about 600 years, between about 1,400 BC. And just to let you know that we've, week on week, we're putting together some resources that are available online at trentv.org forward slash psalms, and we'll be adding the talks onto there and some resources week to week. So keep checking that out during August. So each week, we're looking at a different type of psalm. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ben shared with us about Psalm 1, one of the psalms of wisdom, insights on how to live the good life. Last week, Dave spoke on Psalm 51, one of the psalms of confession, reflecting on our sinfulness and our need to have God's mercy and restoration. In the coming weeks, we'll explore psalms of petition, asking God to move, psalms of praise, giving glory to God. But this week, we want to pause and reflect on an example of what makes up the largest group of the Psalms. More than 60, at least, of the 150 in total are known as Psalms of Lament. Those hymns, those poems that specifically engage with the disappointment and the struggles and the pains of our lives, those unresolved spaces of life. And so before we move on, uh, Donna's going to come and read one of those Psalms of Lament. It's a Psalm of David, Psalm 13. And while she does that, Toby's going to be playing um, quietly for us. And you may want to, as we do this, maybe close your eyes and maybe connect briefly with what might be the unresolved space in your life right now. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Toby. Unresolved spaces of life, 
Every one of us regularly encounter or find ourselves in unresolved space, places of uncertainty, maybe financial uncertainty, job insecurity, relational discord, unfair criticism, maybe health worries, bereavement, rejection, mental turmoil, emotional distress. You and I are regularly inhabiting unresolved space. So the question arises, how do we occupy or navigate that space well? Now, as you listen to the psalm just now, there may well have been one or more unresolved situations that came to mind. You may right now be dealing with a recent health diagnosis, a chronic or a critical condition, ongoing worries or anxiety about the circumstances of a loved one. Maybe very real concerns about how you're going to pay bills in the coming months. You may be dreading going to work tomorrow because of a situation you know you're going to face there. Or you may find yourself in another unresolved space. It may even be that as you heard Susie share those wonderful stories earlier, what God has been doing through DTI, you may be saying, but that's not my experience. The reality is that living in in unresolved space is part of the human condition. And Psalms of Lament are one of the key spaces in the Bible where unresolved space, pain and confusion are met head on. And although so far I've used the phrase unresolved space, often space is the very last word that we would use to describe our situation or our experience. Because the experience can often be more the sense of the world closing in on us. A situation where there's like there's four high walls around us without the room even to move. Like an emotional claustrophobia where it seems that no or very little light is able to break through, where the ultimate experience is like that described by the psalmist in Psalm 88, where after calling out to God with a sense of overwhelming despair, he says at verse 18, you have taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. That sense of circumstance closing in or enveloping us can be a very real experience. I remember uh, one lunchtime in May, about 12 years, or it was 12 years ago, being in WH Smith in Nottingham and my mobile rang. Now, six months previously, I'd had another call when I was out one night and I'd received a call to say that my mum had been diagnosed with cancer. But the prognosis was good and following treatment, uh, just um, in the February following it, um, she'd had the all clear. We'd had the good news. And now just three months on, there in WH Smith, I received the news that the cancer was back. But this time it was not treatable, and the do- doctor's best prediction was that my mum had three months to live. A prediction that turned out to be remarkably accurate. And it was one of those moments where everything changed, where the whole world around me was suddenly different. And I remember walking back to my office that day somewhat in a daze. And I found myself a few minutes later in a prearranged meeting. I have no idea why I went back to the meeting, but I did. And in that meeting, a colleague, not knowing the situation, decided 
It was the perfect time to air her grievances against me in a loud and vitriolic way. And I managed to respond calmly, not due to any virtue on my part, but simply because in that moment I was simply numb. Darkness had descended. And I'm sure you can remember such a moment where darkness came. Whether visiting for a short while, or maybe in such a way that it felt or feels even right now that darkness is your closest friend. As John Wright shared with us in his talk a few weeks ago, quoting Jesus' words from John 16:33, what we might describe as an understatement, in this world you will have trouble. So how do we navigate troubled times, unresolved space, darkness? And as I proceed now and start unpacking Psalm 13, I do so with caution. Cautious not to say anything that might seem glib or unaware of the realities of the pains of life. But I'm also conscious that in the Psalms of Lament, God does provide a window as to where he is in our suffering and how we might navigate the path. So the first thing we see in Psalm 13 is being real with God. The invitation to say it as it is. Engage with God in the reality of our experience or circumstance. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long, Lord? We don't actually know the situation that David was going through when he wrote this psalm. There is speculation. But David here doesn't say. His emphasis, his focus in the moment is the impact on his emotions and on his spirit. His sense of being forgotten, of being alone and hidden, of being in a battle within his own mind, a sense of deep anguish, his heart filled with sorrow and the sense of defeat. In reflecting specifically on Psalm 13, Charles Spurgeon said, a week within prison walls is, no, is longer than a month in liberty. And that's what it can feel like. At times, the experience that we have is a sense of when will this end, either because of the intensity of the situation or because it might be a whole season we're going through in our lives where we face a situation where there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. And Psalms like Psalm 13, as we'll see, end in a place of hope, but not all Psalms do that are recorded. Psalm 39, Psalm 88 they don't actually finish in that place of hope. Psalm 88 finishes as we've uh, described earlier. Darkness is my closest friend. And the reason these psalms are in the Bible is because God is not phased by our honest cries in the midst of our circumstances. In a talk I heard some time ago by the pastor and author Tim Keller on Psalm 88, he quoted the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner saying this, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a, witness, in, is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men and women speak when they are desperate. 
See, God knows. God sees our desperation. He sees our despair. He sees our desolation. That Jesus, that desolation that Jesus himself experienced, even in his darkest hour, as he hung on the cross and he cried out the words, quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the sinless Son of God on the cross, experienced that sense of abandonment, abandonment by God. Jesus experienced the trials and tribulations of life. And so we, in times of darkness and uncertainty, we're invited to say it as it is, pouring out our heart to God, but also to pray it as it is. Pray with absolute honesty. Verses three to four say this, look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. You know, in our time of need, our time of desperation, our time of lament, the reality is that we're invited to pray it as it is. You know, Jesus did give us a structure of prayer, a general structure of prayer of how we should pray with the Lord's Prayer. And many of us structure our, our prayer lives around that. In recent years, we expanding on the Lord's Prayer. Many of us have found the prayer model of Pete Gregg really helpful. P-R-A-Y, pause, rejoice, ask, yield. And it helps us in our prayer. But there are times when structure goes out the window. And Psalms of Lament recognize that in our place of lament, we simply cry. We cry out from a deepest place. We cry, help God. And as I look back on my own times and seasons of desperation, when I look back on that day when I heard that my mum had three months to live, I have no specific recollection of what I prayed. But what I do recall is it was one of those times where I simply didn't even have words. Like Paul says in Romans 8, 26 to 27, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so God invites us into this safe space where we can say it as it is, where we can pray it as it is, but that is not the end of it. God invites us into a place of trust, trust in his love, in his salvation, in his goodness. We're called to declare our trust in the midst of these circumstances, based on the unfailing love, the salvation and the goodness of God. But I trust you in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And we're now at the point where I feel at the greatest danger of speaking in a way that may be glib or trite apparently detached from the reality or the depth of whatever situation you may be facing right now. 
You may be in a situation now, and as I use the word trust, you might respond, what does trust even look like? And as I've reflected on this, some other questions have come to mind that that I've been challenged by. What is the deeper story that I am living in? What is it that forms the foundations and the root system of my life? Over the years, with my children, I have faithfully sat through every Star Wars film and every Marvel film as a loving father, where each episode in the series reveals another part of the overall and unfolding story. The tricky thing for me is that the combination of the darkened room and the comfortable seats of the cinema means that I have a tendency within 15 minutes of the start of the film to drop off to sleep. Waking occasionally at a crucial time in the film to ask, who's that? Is he important? To be said, that's Darth Vader, Dad. And so a number of years ago, we got to the point in our family where the children decided they would no longer sit next to me in the cinema. I have a faithful wife and she continues to do so. But they could no longer bear being interrupted by these annoying questions of their dad. And the result of this was that each time we went to see the next installment of the unfolding story, I had little or no context of what was happening. So when we reached the usual point in the film of the culminating battle scene, which always seems to be there, for me, it was simply an assault on the senses with little understanding or, or, or connection with the significance of the events that were unfolding before me. But the reality is, is that there's the potential that we experience the unfolding events of life in exactly the same way, particularly in dark times, you know, as simply an assault on our physical, our, our emotional, or our spiritual senses, with little context and little apparent meaning. But I believe that God wants us to understand what he has revealed to us through his word, where the unresolved spaces of of life sit in the story of humankind, in the context of eternity, to have an understanding of that which is certain in times of uncertainty. The God who is love created a perfect world, a perfect humanity, but that world, that humanity was damaged, it was tainted by sin. That same God put in place a plan for the salvation of the world, the restoration of humankind. That the outworking of that plan was in his son, Jesus, coming in human form to establish the kingdom of God through his life, death, and resurrection to restore us to him as he overcame sin and death. That one day Jesus will return, but in the meantime we live in this time of tension where God's kingdom has come, it has been established, but it has not fully come. And so we continue to live in a world of trouble, of pain, of sin, And Jesus has said that suffering is a very real part of our journey with him. And it's a mystery that we don't fully understand. But there's the truth that God has declared in the midst of all this that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And one day Jesus will return. 
And there will be no more pain and there will be no more tears. And in the meantime, we live with certainty of what Jesus has established through his death and resurrection, of the identity that we have in Christ, of the enduring faithfulness of God and the reality that he says he dwells with us. He even lives inside us. See, that's our story. It's because of that that we can trust. You see, when we grasp the reality and expanse and depth of the story that we live within, we find ourselves sometimes speaking in a way that might almost seem incomprehensible. Speaking like Paul spoke in Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In 1994, uh, my wife Donna and I, um, we went to a conference at Westminster Central Hall in London. And the main speaker at the conference was John Wimber. And for those of you who aren't, aren't aware, he was the founding leader of the Vineyard Movement. Now, I'd heard, I'd had the privilege of hearing John Wimber speak on numerous previous occasions on worship, on gifts of the Spirit, on healing, on evangelism. But this conference was different. It was entitled, Walking Through the Valley of the Shadow of Death, a reference to Psalm 23, and born out of John Wimber's own experience at the time of having the previous year being diagnosed with inoperable cancer. And it was a profound couple of days such that 28 years later, I still remember it vividly. It was, an out, it was a description and an outworking of what the now and not yet of the kingdom, what it's really like. The reality that the kingdom of God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has come and it has been established, but it will not be fully outworked until Jesus' return. John Wimber was a man through whom thousands were healed. And yet he was living with the consequences of cancer and numerous other serious health conditions at the time. And he described the journey, often painful, where he had experienced uncertainty and pain and fear and anxiety. But through it all, the faithfulness of God. And later he summarized what he had shared at that conference in a little book called Living with Uncertainty. And in it, he said this. What I discovered is that the view from the valley isn't so bad. In fact, it gives you a focus on Christ that you can't get any other way. Have you ever noticed that the stars shine brighter in the desert? There are no obstructions, no distraction or competing lights. The view from the valley isn't, isn't bad because Jesus shines so clearly. He is the treasure that we all can enjoy during any and every circumstance in our lives. The Lord was always with me during those months. He was there in the night, in the morning, in the bad times. I didn't always feel his presence very much, but I knew from the declaration of his word that he never left me. Knowing that, he was easier to find. I may not have felt close to him, but I knew he was there. All I had to do was pray and wait, and he would manifest his presence. He did it every time. Never did he let me down. 
to John Wimbers and others' capacity to go through the valley in the way he did was in part born from many years of knowing the faithfulness and goodness and the salvation of God. Years of walking daily with Jesus and sitting in his presence that freed him to come to God with absolute reality. And as I look back on my own life so far, I can testify through times where I've experienced bereavement and loss and anxiety and disappointment and darkness and uncertainty. And God has never left me and he has never forsaken me. And looking around the room today, I see many people whose stories I know and they are a testimony to the same truth. To the unfailing love, to the salvation, to the goodness of God. A.W. Tozer put it this way, we need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our soul, closer than our most secret thoughts. And I don't know where you find yourself today in terms of the circumstances of life or in in context of the story that I have just described. But I believe that God wants to reassure us today of the truth and the enormity and the depth of what David declared his trust in at verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13. The truth and enormity and the depth of God's unfailing love of his salvation, of his goodness. And so we're going to enter into a time of ministry now, a time of prayer. And as we do so, uh, Donna and Toby are going to come back. And Donna's going to read Psalm 13 for us again. And I just want to invite, if you're able, would you like to stand? And as you do so, I invite you to welcome God's presence. Welcome in this moment his unfailing love, his salvation, his goodness. Get me forever. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me.